0: Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year. Then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and today's date is Friday, February 24th, 2017, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. I'm going to do something today that I think a lot of my fellow baseball podcasters and bloggers may not agree with. They may look at me and say, "Sully, you're wrong. Sully, you're sentimental. Sully, you're lame." And I, 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 I can see where they're coming from, but I do not apologize. I used to be apologetic for liking things that a lot of other people don't like. When it's not cool to like something, you say, oh, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I do. Or this is a guilty pleasure. Those are things that are in our lexicon. There are things that are in our common language, is to talk about guilty pleasures and movies you're not supposed to like or songs you're not supposed to like. And as I'm getting older, and your pal Sully has already blown out 44 candles in his life, I have been less and less inclined to adhere to that mindset. The very concept of a guilty pleasure is something that I now abhor. Why should I feel guilty about something that gives me pleasure? Now, I have to be very careful how I say that. If I say I get pleasure out of strangling strangers or something, you know, nefarious or harmful, then, you no, know, that's a problem. But if I like something and nobody is harmed or humiliated, no one is harmed psychologically or physically by me liking it, then why should I feel guilty about that? If, I, if the song, I Want Candy... I want candy. Bam, bam, bam. That comes on the radio. I tap my feet. It's a catchy little tune. I don't feel guilty about that. If I if you if I like it, then it's up to me. If you don't like it, that's that's, that's your problem. So, I used to really care about that. I used to be oh man yeah yeah it's a guilty pleasure. There are no guilty pleasures. If you like it, then go for it. Don't apologize. If someone says, what and I used to be on saying, What do you think? That film is crap. That movie's shit. That TV show is crap. I've grown a lot more level headed about it. I can say I don't like it. There are a lot of films that a lot of people love that I don't like. You know, the Russell Crowe film Gladiator. Everyone went bananas for it. I hated it when I saw it and I hate it now. I think it's dumb. But a lot of people love it. A lot of people love Top Gun. I hated Top Gun when it came out. When I was about, what, 14 years old? I was writing the wheelhouse for that movie. I didn't like it. Thought it was dumb. And there are some films which I do like that a lot of people may not like. The Rocketeer wasn't the biggest hit of all time. I love it. When Tron came out, a lot of people said, this film's dumb. I loved it. That was a guilty pleasure of mine. Now it's just a pleasure. So where am I taking this? There's a lot of things have been written by bloggers, and I've talked about this when the topic of favorite baseball movie comes out. Field of Dreams, let me put it to you this way, has taken a few lumps. And it's almost become, well, a given. And if you're a podcaster or a blogger, that you hate Field of Dreams. And there's probably a lot of reasons to hate Field of Dreams in terms of the story, in terms of the corniness, in terms of some of the inaccuracies like, you know, shoeless Joe Jackson batting right-handed, the, you know, the, the social absurdity of James Earl Jones waxing poetic for a time when baseball was segregated, and all the players, and, and the field of dreams was segregated too. And for people who are more inclined to the stats, the analytical world of baseball, this sort of fairy tale, nostalgic trip represents for a lot of people what they hate about what the previous generation says and talks about the game. I get it. I get it. I get why people hate Field of Dreams. A lot of people think it's dumb and corny and silly. A lot of people don't like Kevin Costner. I understand intellectually why people don't like Field of Dreams. And now I'm going to say something. Your pal Sully loves Field of Dreams. I love it. I've seen it many times. I own the DVD. There are scenes I can recite by memory, and while I understand all of the intellectual, psychological, and cultural reasons to not be a fan of it, especially one that kind of celebrates the 60s counterculture, which sometimes makes me roll my eyes, yeah, that counterculture gave us, you know, Nixon and Reagan, and it did everything against what the counterculture was supposed to do and became a bunch of, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm sick of the baby boomer world, and it's all the baby boomers are great at this, that, and the other thing. I get it. I get that having Shoeless Joe Jackson saying he would have played the game for nothing, maybe Shoeless Joe Jackson's the wrong character to be saying that. See, the reason he's in the field of dreams is because he didn't play for nothing. And yes, he got great stats at the World Series, but he took the gambler's money. So I get all that. But also remember this. We color what we love. We color what we cherish in terms of pop culture, in terms of movies, music, even baseball, based upon the circumstances where we experience them. For most people my age, there's a fondness, at least a nostalgia, for the Brady Bunch. We all watch the damn Brady Bunch. We all know all the subplots of the Brady Bunch. You can say little things to anyone who grew up at the same time I grew up. Oh, my nose, you know, George Glass. You could say all these references to the Brady Bunch and people my age was yep, got it. Love it. Cuz we all watched it. It was a show that was on. There weren't a lot of shows on during the day for kids to watch. That show was on. And they, you know, provided you were a white kid, you saw a child that you could relate to cuz they, you know, they spanned all the ages and spanned all the insecurities and we watched it. Try watching it now. With a clean set of eyes and a clear head, I can rationally say that that show sucks. The writing was terrible. The stories were absurd. It's not a good show. And yet we all watched it. And yet we all have feelings for that show. We all watched Happy Days in my my youth. That show's unwatchable now it was a show, you know, we watched The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Every week we watched Happy Days, Love Boat, and Fantasy Island. Try watching those now. Holy cats, they're terrible. And yet, all I have to hear is the opening notes of the Love Boat theme or the opening credits to Happy Days or just see Ricardo Montalban look fantastic in that white suit and I get a big grin on my face because it's not just the, the quality of the show, but you're also remembering what you were feeling and what you were doing. There's some visceral reaction. I can't talk about the show without talking about sitting on the couch with my parents watching it. And we have that same feeling towards baseball. When you think about your favorite players, think about the players that you have the most emotions attached to them. For me, it's players like, Jim Rice, Carlton Fisk, Butch Hobson, Yastrzemski, Freddie Lynn, Rick Burleson, Dwight Evans, those players in the Red Sox, and players elsewhere like Mike Schmidt and Reggie Jackson. And uh, who are some other players I really loved? I, loved? I loved Davey Lopes and Steve Garvey. You know, those players who, you know, J.R. Richard was another pitcher I really loved because they were the players who were the best when I was getting to understand what baseball was. And in my mind, those players I just rattled off are going to be put on a different emotional pedestal than players from another era. So understand that we love something sometimes not just because you're witnessing something in a vacuum, but because it reminds you of a visceral emotion you're feeling at that time. We all think the movies that we grew up on were the best because we were going through emotional times and those movies were there for us the baseball players were there for us the songs were there for us the tv shows the movies were there for us during those times and so you get defensive when someone says something because that was your friend that was my show that was my movie and it is nice when it happens to be a great timeless movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws but sometimes it's not Sometimes it's the damn black hole. So when you get to Field of Dreams, I realize one of the reasons why I will always defend that film is because it remind. First of all, I saw the film in 1989. I was a senior in high school. My brother had already moved out of the house. He'd gone and started his. Uh, he was on his way to go into USC. And so it was just me and my parents in the house. And I was a Kevin Costner fan. And before you roll your eyes at that, remember, this was when Kevin Costner was the shit. It sounds strange to hear that, but there was a period of time where he was awesome. He's great in Silverado. He's great in The Untouchables. He's great in No Way Out. He's amazing in Bull Durham. And then later, whether or not you like Dances with Wolves or JFK, you know, he's great in both of those. And then, you know, he taps it all off by the freaking bodyguard. You could believe that Whitney Houston could fall in love with. This, this is when Whitney was in her prime and Kevin Costner was in her, his prime. So this was peak Kevin Costner time. I went to Seafield of Dreams with my mother and father, and I knew nothing about it. And again, this sounds strange, but there was a period of time you can go to a movie without really knowing anything about it because you couldn't watch the previews online. You weren't inundated on, you know, by all these websites. You could go to a film with fresh eyes. Now, I went to that film not knowing what the hell I was going to see. And with that, this really weird story unfolds. Now, to tell you one thing about your pal Sully, one of my favorite types of movies, it's a weird genre, but it exists when you stop and think about it, the category, and my friend Richie Duncan and I talk about this all the time, the category is what would really happen if? I love movies that basically take a normal situation, add one Sort of either supernatural or absurd or heightened reality situation, and ask, all right, what would really happen if this happened? I'll give you an example. Back to the future. What would really happen if you went back in time and you saw your parents when you were the same age and you're a teenager, you saw your parents as a teenager? What would really happen? Another example is Big, which is a great movie. Came out around the same time as Field of Dreams. What would really, don't be like, there's all these silly films of parents switching bodies or Freaky Friday. What would really happen if a kid suddenly was in an adult body? Let's break it down and try to figure out what would really happen. Groundhog Day, what would really happen if you woke up and it was the same day every day? What would you do? Dave, what would you really do if suddenly a doppelganger for the president is sitting in the president's desk and gets to be, you know, no longer cynical, but a, a wide eyed optimist. And so, those types of movies, and I love all the films that I just rattled off right there. All those films ask that question what would really happen if Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is another one, and Field of Dreams is one. What would really happen if you started hearing these voices? What would really happen if you were given this? Mission, this sort of this strange odyssey that uh, Costner had to go on in the film, and I think something that will I, I will always cherish, and I always I, to this day it gives me goosebumps, is the first few scenes when he's hearing the voice in the cornfield, because Costner plays it perfectly. He first first thing he's well, he thinks he hears something, he yells, "You must have heard that." And then finally he gets upset. So what do you want? And the way he acted, the way he reacted, I was like, yeah, that's what I would do. That's how I would react. How would you react if ghosts start showing up in your corn? Or if you were giving a new mission to go find the character that James Earl Jones played who was a surrogate for J.D. Salinger? What would you really do if you saw the ghost of this dead ball player, the Burt Lancaster character? And so I was... Drawn into that and going through this with my parents on either side of me. And being caught off guard, not knowing what the hell I was about to get into with this odyssey, was this really emotionally fun ride for me. I had no idea about it. if you build it, if you come. I didn't even know it was about baseball. And to see the film unfold in that way. And because of that, every time I see the movie, And every time I see a clip from it, I'm not just experiencing the film in a vacuum. I'm experiencing how I experienced it. I am remembering not just here are the lines that Costner said, here are the lines that James Earl Jones said, here's the line that Amy Madigan says, but I'm remembering the visceral experience of watching it, which when you think about it, is how we remember everything. Think about any game, any baseball game, that you your team won, your team lost. When you talk about that game, do you just talk about the play on the field? Or do you talk about where you were? Who you were sitting with? What you were drinking, what you were eating, what someone said, what someone didn't say, what person left, what person showed up? We don't just remember things in a vacuum. When you hear a song, you don't think, oh, I'm thinking of the drummer beating the drum and the guitar player playing the guitar. No, you're remembering I was in this class in love with this person, and this song reminded me of them. The song Everything She Does is Magic, I hear by the police, and there is a specific girl's face that I cannot get out of my head when I hear it. And I still see her as when I was a teenager. And it was as if the police wrote that song about her. And to this day, I can't hear that song and not remember that feeling of falling so hard for this woman. She's a, she was a girl then, she's a woman now. And it was like that song is about her. I can't think about game six of the 1986 World Series without thinking about being in my living room with my parents and my brother dialing my Uncle Ron. I can't think of being at, the, of the bloody sock game without saying I was in the stadium when it happened. That's part of it. Or when the Cubs beat the Indians in at Epic game seven, I was in the hospital with my dad who was in the hospital for reasons I'll talk about some other time. And it was a stressful time. But we were watching the game, and the excitement of that game gave us a respite for why we were there. That's all part of the collective of how we enjoy things. So it's not a guilty pleasure. I got pleasure from it. When I see that, I remember the experience of watching and seeing it unfold. And all the intellectual reasons, and all the visceral reasons, and all the story reasons you would have against it, I get it, but it gives me happiness. And I've watched it, and every time I watch it, I get transported to that moment in 1989 where I experienced it, and how I experienced it. And when you think about it, that's how we experience everything in life. So why would I ever feel guilty about that pleasure? So, it may not make me cool in your eyes. In your eyes. Yeah, think about that, that song. Think about that and not thinking about John Cusack holding that boombox and not thinking about the person you were in love with while you saw that movie. It all interconnects. It's how we enjoy things. So don't feel guilty about enjoying things. If you don't like Feel the Dreams, you know what? You're not alone. And if I saw it now, and I'd never seen it before, and I just dialed it up on Netflix or something like that, I'd probably not enjoy it. But that's not how I saw it. And I did So go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, Instagram, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Building it, and you will come. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.